Tokyo Olympics marks the end of a this time around five-year cycle for athletes that will result in a well-earned mental and physical break when the games are done. But the same thing applies for those that work with the athletes, including communications professionals. Lucy Benjamin has worked across the globe in several sports, but most recently she's been Australian Rowing's communications and government relations manager. Now, Lucy is one of those people that is having that well-earned break because she's finishing up at Rowing Australia at the end of the games. In this episode of Michelson Alexander Explains, we talk to Lucy at the end of that time about how the Olympics functions from a commerce perspective and what it was like on the ground in Tokyo. We talk about what it would have meant for a sport like rowing if the Tokyo Games were postponed again or cancelled completely. And how do you make the most of two weeks airtime in the mainstream media when you're Olympic sport? That often will apply to any business that is trying to make their mark in a limited space. And now it's over to Lucy. They'll see the Red Boys in a minute. They're coming up about now. There they go, 2.50 to go. 30 strokes, they can count it down. And this is where they have to really hold on and give absolutely everything. So the lungs are hurting at the moment. This is going to be an absolute nail-biter. There's less than 200 metres to row. Australia just in front. Netherlands, less than a canvas away, are wearing down. They're eating into that margin. Now there's 100 metres to row. It's Australia just in front. Netherlands coming out after them. And then two boat lengths away to Ireland third. The Australians giving it everything. Just in front. Netherlands not getting there yet. Still Australia marginally in front. It's Netherlands trying ever so hard, but the Australians are holding on and win gold. <laughs> what a performance. Lucy, thanks for joining us. You're joining us live from quarantine after arriving back from Tokyo. What was your Olympic experience like, given it wasn't what you might have been expecting in, say, December 2019. Thanks for having me. Um, it's nice to have some people to talk to. Uh, <laughs> it's not the media for once uh, while I'm sat here in quarantine. Um, I'd say actually the games were a total joy. The The Japanese were incredibly hospitable um, and the rowing events ran like they do for any other um, event for us. Like I suppose the biggest difference we had um, for rowing is normally we're not in the village um, because we're normally the rowing venues are quite far way out from wherever the Olympic village is. But because of the setup of Tokyo, we were able to actually be in the village this time, which I think actually had a really positive impact on our um, athletes and the whole group because we really were absorbed as part of the Australian Olympic team, which gave really good ethos and basis for us as we as we springboarded into um, the games. I'd say some of the challenges, yes, you have to do a spit test every day um, for COVID, which was, you know, there's only so much spit one thinks they can get each morning, but <laughs> you, have, you have to do that. Um, and then also wearing a mask every day, like all day, every day. And that's that was quite taxing, particularly in the heat. Um, it's 32 to 35 degrees, and then you've got 84 to 90% humidity. Um, and having to wear a mask through that was a challenge, but at the same time, a lot of my athletes said it as well. They said, you know, if that's what we've got to do in order to, to perform on the world stage at the biggest global event of our time, then we're going to suck it up and we'll do it. And, and so we did. Um, 
And I just, yeah, I think the whole experience was very much that we felt very much like a whole Australian Olympic team rather than this experience where in 29, in 2016, when I'd been in Rio, we lived separately from the entire Olympic team. So we kind of come in in the second week, which this time we're not doing, but we come in the second week and meet everyone then rather than this first week where we're in with the swimmers, we're in with the volleyball, we're in with water polo. And everyone's celebrating everyone else's successes. And that was really lovely. I think there was a lot of stuff on TV about that, that of everyone watching together. And it really was like that. And that was what was a real boost, I think, for me going into something that had been a lot of uncertainty. It was a real team environment and a, a familial environment. Shannon and I had some conversations on the first episode of this little mini series that we're putting together about the kind of the negative publicity around the start of the Olympics. So when you're actually on the ground in Tokyo, did you did you have a sense of what was actually happening outside of that kind of bubble of the Olympic Village and what the athletes were up to? Or were you kind of a little bit shut off from some of that broader context when you're actually on the ground in Tokyo, kind of living that bubble life? I, so that I have a, a knowledge of it and an awareness of it because I'm in the communications department. So it's, it's having that awareness of what's going on so I can brief my athletes and my staff who are speaking to the media about what, um, if there is negativity towards it. Um, but actually everything we saw when we were there was not negative. Um, so what was actually quite, I suppose, quite sad for some of my athletes was seeing people on the street, like waving frantically at the buses, like cheering and had made signs mm. and people at the gates of our car parks going out to go to, you know, the, the media centers and stuff for interviews with the gold medalists. There's, you know, five or six kids just desperately waving through, you know, the, the barriers to, to say hello and to see pictures of the athletes. And so, I completely understand and respect the Tokyo authorities' decision on how they wanted to run the games, and that's that's 100% correct for protecting their communities and and protecting their their society. Um, but I definitely don't think we felt um, unwelcome whatsoever, and didn't feel that kind of negativity that that has been spoken about in media circles. And so. Tell us a little bit about how the communications process works for an Olympic sport. For those that have not been involved in it, you work for Rowing Australia as a full-time employee, but what happens in around Olympics time? What happens and does anything change about where you answer to and so forth? And how do you fall under the AOC's banner? I know that's a little bit of a sprawling question and there might be a sprawling answer for that for that but tell us how it fits in in the in the broader comms perspective of the Australian Olympic team I actually become a member of the Australian Olympic team um as a, and I, I currently still am at the moment um so we when you become part of the Olympic team you sign a, a memorandum of understanding like a, an agreement with them um and in that window I effectively report to the AOC um, and their media team while I manage rowing because rowing sits under them as part of a team um, at the same time, I still keep my, my um, employer informed of situations as with the AOC. So if there is an incident that takes place or there's something that needs to be briefed on, then my CEO is still briefed, um, but normally by the AOC CEO. And then I still will speak to him. Um, and then our sport leader for rowing, for example, is Bernard Savage and, and Wayne Diplock. We have two. And I will report to them still because we all sit under the AOC's banner in that sense. The way it works during a games, though, is it is different. I don't deliver content for Rowing Australia. I actually delegate that and I can and explain about what content is delivered and how we do that. But during the Olympic Games, there's a blackout period um, between the 13th of July until the 10th of August. And in that mean, means in that window, we um, can't promote athletes um, as we would normally. So I have to think differently about how things are going to be promoted on our channels 
um, because the athletes need to be in the kit that is the Olympic kit. They can't be in kit that's um, our competitive sportswear brand um, with competitive um, sponsors that we have. Um, and so during that time, a lot of things change. My digital strategy has to change for running Australia and then I have to sort of park it and give it to someone else to manage. Um, so I create the strategy, tell them what they need to do. And then I step away and then I get a lot of WhatsApps because I've been doing this job for eight years. So there was a lot of like, is this okay to post? Can I do this? Um, <laughs> and so the role changes. And at the games, my role is purely to support the Australian Olympic team. So I'll look after rowing um, each day, but then I also in the afternoons would look after occasionally to help another sport out um, if they needed it, because we have um, MLOs, media liaison officers who look after lots of other sports. So I had, you know, one day I went to badminton and did some stuff at badminton. I've never watched badminton in my life, but I learned a lot about it very quickly. and was the badminton media liaison for 24 hours. Um, so it, it does change your support. You support in a different way. So you you work as part of a team of media liaison officers. There's you know twenty something of us um, across all the sports, um, and we're part of a team that delivers for the AOC in that sense. So we deliver content for them, which can then be reshared by our own um, organisations in that window. That media liaison officer role. What are you doing with that? Are you liaising with a broad with broadcasters, with on the ground journalists from Australia or from other countries? What's your what does that busy time look like for you? I can explain what a day looks like for me. So mm, I get up yeah. very early. Um, I normally come up with the athletes. So we're normally on the way down to the course between five thirty and six thirty in the morning because the athletes go for a pre row. So I'll go down in the morning with them. Um, when I get to the venue, I'll make sure I introduce myself to the venue media manager who will be working for the Olympic um, organising committee and just let him know that I'm there. I'm the Australian media liaison. If there's any media requests from international media for our athletes, that should come through me. Um, I'll then introduce myself to the Australian um, media that may be present. So for us, there was a couple of print journalists plus Channel 7 were there as the host broadcaster. Um, and we would I'd meet with them. I'd explain that the athletes post-racing would potentially come through mixed zone. So they're required by the IOC to walk through a mixed zone um, after racing to face media questions should they be required. Um, not a lot of the times they are, but like most of the time they will do it because they're required to do it and they don't necessarily have to stop. It's kind of a, a weird thing of if they're not in the mood, they don't have to, but there's a requirement to do the walkthrough. Um, ours are pretty good. They all do it. And so once we've done that, I'll normally grab some quotes from them as well. Um, I'll normally then write the post-race report or I'll work with someone from the AOC to write that and get quotes to them and I'll I'll proof it for the, the writer for them so they've got the right rowing terminology and they've not got names wrong, etc. Um, I'll also tweet for them while I'm there because I'm in venue, so it's easy for me to do some live content. Um, once we've done the racing and any media obligations within the venue, we'll go back to um, the village. At the village, if I've got media requests, they'll come through to me via either WhatsApp or emails. Um, we'll occasionally do live crosses to Channel 7, which is in the village because they're the rights holder. And then there's an opportunity. We did it really with medalists rather than non-medalists, but we've done it more so now. Um, to take athletes outside of the village to the, to do what is called a grassy knoll is what we call it in Olympic terms. <laughs> and that's for non-rights holders. Um, so what happens is because seven is the rights holder, um, but you don't want to disenfranchise or, or make it harder for the likes of ABC and Channel 10 and 9 and Fox and Sky who are also over there trying to get their news. Um, what we'll do is we normally go just outside the village to um, effectively the car park, but you're still within the compound of the village for security and meeting the requirements of 
the Tokyo Organising Committee um, and we invite the journalists to there and we'll set up a little sort of what we call, yeah, it's called a grassy knoll. Um, and they do a, they do a Q&A with them there. So that's what I did with my Olympic medalists on the, on the on the Wednesday last week when we won gold and bronzes. We took them out there and it meant that they had the opportunity to get content with them. Um, and then the following day, if we've won medals, this is what we did on on um, the following day on Thursday last week was I went to racing in the morning with the athletes that were in B finals, then came back. And then we went to the MPC, which is the media press center for the Olympics and for the IOC. And we had to take athletes to do a major press conference, which is with the medalists plus the chef de mission. And that's more for more international media and broadcast and opportunities for questions to go to them. So to say there's a bit going on there would probably be one of the understatements of the of the year. I'm sort of interested in, and obviously you mentioned there we had that enormously successful morning last Wednesday where we had a couple of rowing gold and a couple of new awesome foursomes born and we had pool, uh, pool gold at the same time. So on the on the ground, what content are you able to generate kind of in the immediate aftermath of a medal to kind of amplify that through your own channels? Or are you at the Olympics kind of very much stepping away and going, you know what? the media is kind of going to do this for me because who doesn't love an awesome foursome? They kind of do it themselves. It was pretty much carnage. I, I had two other media liaison officers coming to help me that day because um, if I hadn't, I wouldn't have been able to get all my athletes through the mix zone, but also get them back out again to do the medal presentations and then come back around because with rowing, it's it's quite cumbersome. You have to you do the medal presentation, but then they actually have to get back in their boat and row it around to the pontoon that they can get off at because they can't leave their boat sat at a pond while the other next race comes through. It's very different. I used to work in cricket. That was much simpler. Drop the bat, go. Now it's like I can't drop the boat and go. Um, so it was a it was that there's that process. Um, but a lot of it does it for itself, as you said, with, with the fact that the Olympic spotlight that puts on the media and there's obviously the the awesome foursome were a um a part of Australian rowing history 25 years ago and and we've constantly been a topic of conversation around that that's what people associate so now the fact that we've got a male and a female crew that are olympic gold medalists in that boat class it, it generates its own media um so for the AOC, we don't i mean i don't need to need to do anything because it it generates and the imagery is provided um with regards to what rowing australia did at that time was i'd set them up to have we had a photographer delivering images directly to them um, and I had a, an individual, a girl called Joe, who's been working with me as a freelance who delivered all our social media during that time. And so Joe basically took the lead there. And I let her run with it and she just posted photos and Instagram stories and reels, et cetera. And so that got the real hype up. I think the other thing that helped us is a lot of our families had gathered together to watch the racing. And so where they had gathered together, we had let Channel 7 and the ABC and um, nine and ten and, and other people know that they were together and so they then all traveled in and watched with the families and so that added some really great content for people um, and probably put some of the parents in in a, in a different spotlight um, <laughs> one, like, the father of one of the men's four became renowned for his catchphrase of the thunder from down under uh, for describing the men's four but um, it, it created its own kind of hype and its own uh, spotlight for us um, by having the families being able to be easily accessed by the media in, in Australia at the same time. We see the Olympics as the, the peak of, of media attention for a sport like rowing. There's other parts of, the, of a four-year cycle that would create great interest, but the Olympics is, is the number one thing. How important to Rowing Australia then is those two weeks? for what does, what does it do for what Rowing Australia does? So from a comms perspective, what do they sort of 
want to get out of those two weeks of the Olympics? The Olympics is a huge month. And I think there's an aspect of this that I really understood or started to understand having come from commercial sport and then going into non-commercial sport. So I worked, um, as you know, Shannon, for many years for the International Cricket Council Mm. where cricket is commercial, but I did work in the development side of the sport, which isn't commercial, um, but has the financial backing of the ICC to help it grow and, and leverage itself. This is our once in a in a once in a quadrennial cycle opportunity to showcase ourselves commercially um, as well in a public relations aspect and in a participation aspect um, to grow participation in sport. Um, my athletes are, are multiple world champions, but due to crowded commercial sporting landscape, no one really knows that, and no one really pays attention to the fact that actually in twenty. 17 when my men's four won it was the first time in 26 years that Australia had won a world championships in the men's four but no one cared about that because it was also September in Australia and something was happening with AFL or something was happening with NRL and so <laughs> I constantly spend my life calling people and being like oh did you know oh yeah that's a good story but yeah no um sorry I've got something else to write about um and then the other aspect is is commercially it's actually the Fox Sports have the rights for rowing in Australia. And so they show it, but they don't necessarily always show it live. Um, so they'll show it later because they've got other things that they need to show on the channel. Um, and then you combine it with um, just also we're based in Europe for a lot of our competition. So that also is a challenge. Um, and that's been a benefit, particularly from Tokyo, is the time zone. Um, because if you're rowing in in Europe, no one's up at three in the morning to watch it unless you're coming home from being at the pub having been watching rugby league. So it's kind of like, you know, it just swings and roundabouts in that sense. But um, it's our one chance to really, really showcase because we have a spotlight on us for a week where rowing's always in the first week and we have that chance to really showcase to commercial partners, to philanthropic investors, um, to people to take note of our sport and see what it is to invest in the athletes and in the growth of the sport. So it's this thing of trying to get those stories out. And so during that lead up to the games, it was this opportunity for me to speak to journalists because they were actually asking, but I was also pushing and saying, well, hang on a minute, I've got, you know, athletes who have, you know, are from rural backgrounds, parents who are struggling through drought or who are farmers and kids who are the sons of AFL players or someone who was a doctor during COVID and it's trying to tell those stories and then using those stories to leverage us into people's mindsets so they know who my athletes are and and it's just it's starting to happen and it's and it happens by osmosis of, of the games but then also just really lovely quirky stuff like today I got an email from Melbourne Water or something that the, the people who deliver to tell me that a new boring machine that's being used to go under the Yarra River is going to be called Lucy after Lucy Stefan, who run the women's four, because <laughs> girls from a local school, the, the local primary school, had seen her win gold and they wanted to name the machine. They got the they got to choose the name. It had to be a woman, and they chose Lucy. And it's just quirky stories like that, and these lovely stories that we can put out into the community that we obviously hitting people's mindsets because they're watching rowing and they're enjoying it and they're seeing our athletes. You're sure they didn't just want to name it after the head of communications? <laughs> I would love that. That would be lovely. But uh, unfortunately, I did not row an Olympic record time in a women's four. Olympic record time of crying as they crossed the line was me. <laughs> There's a lot of gold medal chat that's been mixed into the last few minutes. I guess when we win a gold medal, the talk is all of 
how it will inspire the next generation and how we might now name a boring machine uh, after one of the the rowers. So is that impact something that you see over the next you know a couple of years? Is it something that you see now? Like how much of a difference does a gold medal actually make to the Olympics for rowing? I think it does. It makes a big impact. So Kim Brennan won a gold when we were in 2016 in, in Rio, and that that propelled Kimmy um, even more into the spotlight than she already was. Um, she obviously had um, a, an established name for herself, partly due to her family pedigree in in general. Um, but it it impacts us in the sense of it, it gives the athletes opportunity that we that they perhaps wouldn't have had before um, to go and ask to be you know speaking at events and, and being able to conduct. Um, an opportunity to get salaries for doing things like that, which they wouldn't normally do. Um, but it also, for us, it, it expands our opportunities and being able to say, well, look, we're an Olympic gold medal winning sport. We've consistently improved after the last, over the last 10 years, consistently delivered, and then also showcasing what sport can do for, for you. So we talk about with our athletes, particularly about their resilience, their teamwork, their just complete and utter dedication and work ethic. And so it talks to, and that's why a lot of kids seem to do it at school because they enjoy that team environment. And so we continue to use those athletes to leverage that and talk about the greatness of the sport. But one thing that Rowing Australia is particularly looking to do at the moment is we're also diversifying. So we're not just talking about those guys who are winning um, on the water in Tokyo, but we're also talking about indoor rowing. So we're doing partnerships with people like um Veteran Sport, Veteran Sport Australia, so working with defence um, to look at stuff with indoor rowing and Invictus and then looking at ways to expand with coastal rowing, which is another way our sport is diversifying. And so that's something that we we have looked to do and then use the Olympic Games as that opportunity to springboard and get people having a conversation about rowing and understanding that it's this full body workout, that it's a teamwork that you know you've got you've got to be resilient, you've got to keep going with it. But when you do, you can excel and look at what you can can achieve with it those background stories of athletes which people can relate to even if they don't know rowing they can relate to those human stories and it's it's a theme of what we've been talking about in this series and you know a theme of all comms really you search for those background stories what sort of things do you do in the lead up to prepare so i'm thinking what do you do with channel seven and how far out do you do things to prepare for that moment when either they are competing or they are winning a medal or, or so forth or promotional stuff or, or things you film with Channel 7 throughout. When does that actually start or is that always happening? For me, it starts as soon as the one cycle finishes and the next one begins in that I have to do the work myself to begin with to talk to the athletes and understand their story and build a relationship with them to know who they are, to find those those golden stories of that I know will have a media hook. But I also need to build with the athlete to know the athlete wants to tell that story or is comfortable, but also learns how to tell their story in the best possible way. And it's not always me that's teaching, that's working with them with that. I, I try to assist, but then also um, people like the AIS um, help us with um, opportunities to get mentors in to help them to present themselves better. And then that also is an idea of part of our wellbeing um, work that our wellbeing manager does that it's how they transition out as well afterwards so it's tell your story now but learn how to continue to do it to present the best version of yourself when you do leave the sport um, but I I start the process early I also we do a lot of videography so that's one of the things that I'm probably most proud of the legacy I leave rowing with is that we didn't have any video content before I joined um, and now we have a, a videography aspect that we deliver content whether it's reels whether it's pump pump, pipe reels 
or it's actually telling stories of athletes. And that was the start process is using our video content and gathering content of our athletes rowing and all that kind of stuff because then you can spoon feed people like channel seven with the content because you're like here's interviews i've done or here's video content of rowing that you you could use and then you can do your own interview and with that they go to be frank everyone's lazy they don't want to do the least amount of work possible mm. if i can hand deliver to them well here's a load of rowing footage all you got to do is interview the athlete they snap it up and so i started that process probably you know, I started it after Rio and then continued to grow and continue to keep engaged with them through the AOC and Channel 7 and then through my own contents that I contacts that I'd established. And then when it came to about a year and a half out from the games or a year from the games, they then started to sort of wake up again to the content that I delivered to them and said, oh, actually, we'd like to have a couple of athletes who's got good stories. And that's where they delivered um, in the lead up to the games. They did a fantastic piece with Simon Keenan, who's the um, in the men's eight, whose father is Crackers Keenan from the AFL. And so we then hand-delivered a whole bunch of content that we had. We gave them Simon. I prepared Simon how to tell his story. Simon also had some footage of himself as a kid with his dad. And so, therefore, then that created the perfect package for them because they're also the host broadcaster of AFL. Mm. So kind of thinking ahead of planning those ideas for them, planting the seed, sit back, see what they do, and then they wake up probably about six months before they're supposed to go, oh, can we do this? And you're like, sure, here you go. You know, we're talking in a sport context, but that same thing applies outside of sport, I believe, too, in that you will get your moment in the sun or in the rain, but if you've got things ready to go and you've got content ready to go and stories ready to go, you can either make the most of your moment in the sun or have an umbrella up against the rain <laughs> when that time comes. They're pretty good, though. They, I mean, and when they've taken it, they've been – They've been pretty great at the moment in continuing to engage with us. And when we've been in quarantine, they still are wanting to try and get the athletes on to be involved with things. I suppose the benefit is that they're a captive audience at the moment. So um, with quarantine currently in place, like my athletes, I asked them to get up at 6am to do something this Friday. And they were like, sure, but nothing else on. Give me something to do. So they're embracing it and I'm happy for them to, to keep doing it. I guess throughout this cycle as well, do you find that your athletes are quite willing participants when it comes to media stuff or do you find that they're a bit wary? I'm, I'm mindful like for a sport like rowing, they probably almost like the press I'd imagine because they don't get a lot of it. It's like, oh, hello, attention, how good? Uh, swings and roundabout. So I've take, taken a lot. So they didn't have a full-time communications person when I joined. So that's taken a lot of hard work for me to build a relationship with them to then feel like they trust and want to do it. They also are very – it's interesting because there's this whole thing people talk to me about like, oh, their social media and are they very active on Instagram? And I've got probably – you know, I've got – 38 athletes on the Olympic team, I'd say maybe only 15 to 20 or 15 or so 20 are, are actively on Instagram and actually building their own profile. They just don't really have interest. They're so focused on delivering and so focused on achieving for Australia and, and for themselves and for their crew and their families that they don't really have time to be creating a brand for themselves and promoting themselves that way. So they sort of see me as a person that can help deliver that. Um, they will talk to the media. I have ones. I have. To, I've worked it out with them as to who's comfortable and who's confident, and those that just are like, "This isn't for me." Can I not? You know, they'll do something if they really need to. They've got to do an interview because they're from a certain place, or someone really wants to talk to them. But if they don't want to do it, I'm never going to force them to do it. So they, but pretty much all of them will do something. But that's also I feel strongly because I've built a relationship and a friendship with them to be able to go. 
this is the opportunity. This is how it benefits you. This is how it benefits the sport. This is some of the curly questions that may come your way. This is how you can manage it, that kind of stuff, that they're willing to do it and they will engage. Um, but that's taken time and you have to take them on a journey. And that's the thing I learned from when I joined them is I couldn't go in there and be like, well, this is what we did at the ICC and this is how it's going to work here. What really had to happen was say to them, this is what I'd really like to do. This is what I want to achieve. And this is why I want to achieve it and how I think it can benefit the sport. And if they see how it can benefit the community, how it can benefit themselves, how it can benefit the wider sport, then they're much more willing to come along for the mm. ride. Than just, they're not they're not particularly selfish athletes. I've really found like they, they can be selfish in the sense of what they want to achieve for their own rowing personal goals and personal bests. And that's absolutely fine. But in the sense of what they want for the wider community and the acknowledgement of what rowing has given them or how much the community has supported them over the years or how much they've invested in them. They're very much, they're very giving of that. And they'll go and do meetings at school and they love talking to kids at the national. Mm. It's come up and ask them questions and, they're really very giving in that sense. That's actually a nice little segue to a bit of a different question as you talk about the fact that being out there as as Olympic athletes has the ability to put back into the sport to try and grow it. There's a lot of talk about whether these Olympics should have gone ahead. What would it have meant to a sport like rowing if the Olympics had have been cancelled completely? It would have been extremely tough. It's not like commercial sport it's not the same this is the one this is our like we have a world championships every year and our athletes do world championships they didn't race the world champ they finished in 2019 didn't race at all internationally in 2020 because the games were postponed and if it had gone again in 2021 I think there's a couple of different impacts that we need to think about not just for a sport like rowing but for any um, sport that doesn't have a um, doesn't have a commercial aspect to it so whether it's a water polo or a volleyball or or any of those sports the impact both for organizations to try and leverage and grow the sport and grow participation and engagement um, when the olympics is that big springboard and that big stage for it to be on um, would be i think quite a a major impact Um, i also think the impact it would have had on both athletes and support staff and coaches alike including myself would have been huge um, and I think that would be something that need, would need a huge amount of support from um, the likes of the AIS and the AOC and Paralympics Australia, for example, with the with the Paralympics that are coming up. Um, I think people need to think there would need to have been a reflection about what it would mean to those people and how it would impact those people and their life, because their livelihood has been to focus on achieving that gold medal. That's what they've worked towards. And then for it to go and then think, I've got to wait another four years or three years or five years to get to it. It's huge in comparison to, say, you know, a grand final. Oh, I've just got to wait another year. It's a, it's one year. That's 365. Mm. It's not, not 800 and something days before you even get that opportunity to showcase to the world how good you really are. And I'm, I'm mindful we are quickly running out of time. So I might get you to finish by – you've already told us a couple of really fun stories from – life inside the olympic village i might get you to leave us with the the best story that you have got uh from tokyo and the thing that amazed you the most about these olympic games i think if i picked a rowing moment that was remarkable that hour that hour on the wednesday and i actually get emotional thinking about it that hour on the wednesday last week where we won the most the fastest we'd ever won medals in rowing we ran it 20 minutes we ran, we won two. That was the fastest ever that we won two gold medals. Um, and then to win the two bronze medals as well thereafter. 
I think the emotional aspect of that and, and I was in tears and there was a lot of people in tears and I think it's because <laughs> we have all been part we've got a semi-centralized system so the athletes the girls are in Penrith the boys are in Canberra we've all been working together for this for the last five years and to finally see it come to fruition and to see the hard work and the sacrifices that they'd made finally happen was just huge and it was just a huge relief it was this outpouring of relief but of joy and gratitude that everything they'd done had really finally paid off and they'd taken the the gold medal you know for the girls for the first time and since 92 had it been raced and for the boys they'd taken it off GB who'd had it for the last five consecutive Olympic games which was just huge so I think that would be probably one of the best ones I think quirkiest oh look you know sleeping on a cardboard bed for 10 days was pretty, pretty pretty unique and remarkably comfortable um and also just and, uh, and also being in the olympic village and being at the dining hall and the amount of food i've never eaten more gyoza in my life but you know i could still eat it thing about that came out of tokyo oh, that's very good and all your and all your preparation paid off when those gold medals were won it did and they delivered and they were great and they were fantastic on the in the media stuff afterwards i was really proud of how they they handled themselves and um, and continue to handle themselves. And that's the probably been one of the highlights is we're all in quarantine, but they get media requests and they straight up send me a message and go, am I doing this? Can we go through you? I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get it wrong. And that if that's my legacy, that they realise that there's someone there supporting them who they can mm. flick on those ideas through and ask the questions, then I'm happy to, to sail to the sunset and know that they, they get the importance of the medium. It's a great legacy to have left and it's also been great for us to have you on the show and to have a chat about your experiences in Tokyo. It certainly gets me excited for the prospect of uh, Brisbane 2032 uh, and you know the number of different Australian people that will get to work at those Olympic Games. Um, it should be incredibly exciting. So thank you very much, Lucy. So, Shannon, on our next episode, which will be the final one of this little mini-series, we'll be joined by Steve Marsden, who's the president of Global Sales and Olympic Partnerships for Sports 5. So we are looking forward to picking his brains about some of the management and sports marketing opportunities that Olympic Games throw up. That will be a lot of fun and a lot of interesting stuff about how this whole Olympics would have been approached in the unique circumstances. But thank you so much, Lucy. It is your swan song from Rowing Australia and what a way to go out. Thank you so much.